Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features David Housewright at Anoka County's Rum River Library. Minnesota boasts its fair share of thriller novelists, but few are as prolific as David Housewright. Intrepid ex-cop Holland Taylor, Housewright's original protagonist, first came to the attention of readers in his 1995 debut, Penance. It earned the author the 1996 Edgar Award for Best First Novel and put him in contention for that year's Seamus Award, bestowed by the Private Eye Writers of America. Housewright's follow-up, Practice to Deceive in 1997, garnered him his first Minnesota Book Award. Jelly's Gold in 2010 and Curse of the Jade Lily in 2013, two books in his 14-installment Rushmore Mac McKenzie series, earned him two more, putting him in rare company. His latest, What the Dead Leave Behind, follows the St. Paul private investigator as he takes on the case of an unsolved murder in New Brighton that, like so many of the Twin Cities area crimes Mac investigates, is more than it seems at first. Not mincing words, Publishers Weekly warns readers that they will find what the dead leave behind nearly impossible to put down. It hit shelves in June. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Usually, guys like me, uh, we, don't, we don't get respect. <laughs> we, don't, we don't get this kind of respect. And that's because we write what, what, what is called popular fiction. Why anybody wants to write unpopular fiction, I couldn't <laughs> say. But we're, we're popular fiction writers, and, and the literary community tends to look down on guys like me. Now, I know Carrie Miller, for example. She's not going to have me on talking volumes. No, come on, he writes mysteries. And it's always been that way. Uh, it goes back uh, to the beginning of time. I mean, the reason we call, they, they call crime novels uh, pulp fiction, because back in the day, they didn't think we were worthy enough to get the really good paper. So we got to the, you know, the, the chunk of paper where they still have chunks of wood floating around in it. That's, that was what we got. Um, you, guys, you guys know who Mickey Spillane is? Some of you not. Mickey Spillane so, sold, I want to say, 220 million books. 220 million. 
and nobody ever recorded him on a podcast. <laughs> in fact, he got no respect at all. He, you know, he never got invited anywhere uh, to speak to anybody. This is true. In fact, I, I had the great pleasure of meeting the man in about like 1998-99, a long time ago now. And he told us this wonderful story. Uh, he, was, he was actually invited to the publication party for a different author. And the reason he was published is, or, or invited is because his publisher didn't want to offend him because he told, sold 220 million books, right? So he goes to the party, but nobody's talking to him, except the bartender in the back of the room. The bartender loves him. <laughs> Every time he takes a sip of his drink, it's like, let me freshen that up for you, man. You know, let me take care of you. And he told us that towards the end of the evening, a guy came up to him and told him, Mr. Spillane, I want you to know that I believe it is a sorry indictment of the readership of this country that in the past decade, six of the 10 most popular books were written by you. To which Mickey famously replied, I quit your whining, you big baby. You're lucky I didn't write four more. <laughs> and I'm with Mick. I'm with Mick. Hell yes, I'm with Mick. And a couple, a few years after he told me the story, uh, I was invited to attend the Upper Midwest Booksellers Convention. Now, if you guys don't know what this is, uh, in fact, I'm not even sure they do them anymore, but what, what happened is all the publishing houses and all the guys who, who sold little pens and stuff, anything that had anything to do with booksellers or bookstores or libraries or whatever, they were all invited to these regional conventions. And all the publishers and all the people who had things to sell would have their wares out. And you would go from booth to booth to see what's, you know, what's available for sale and, and that sort of thing. And I was invited by my publisher, because we, we were coming out with a new series of books and we're, you know, we're trying to get some, get some momentum going. And what they did is they put me at a table and I would sign free copies of my book to whoever wanted them, bookstore owners, librarians, whoever. And I had a nice line. I had about 40, 40 50 people. Well, pretty good. Of course, they were free. <laughs> On the other hand, over here, we got like 200 people. And they're all lined up like they're waiting for a ride at, a, a ride at Disney World, right? You know how this, they think. And they're all waiting for Garrison Keillor, oh. all right? So I'm, I'm done you know, wrapping it up. And Keeler walks past my table to go to do his, his signing. And I call him out. I say, you know, Mr. Keeler. He steps over and I says, you know, you've given me a lot of pleasure over the years. And I hand him a copy of my book. I say, you know, maybe this will give you some pleasure. He takes the book and he reads the very first line. She had lived long past a time when her death would have been tragic. Not bad? I, I think so. I like it. Reads the line, closes the book, drops the, t the book, uh, book on the table, and says, I don't read mysteries. And he walks away. Okay, you know, 
he could have been nicer to me. <laughs> he could have said thank you and thrown my book away as soon as my back was turned. I mean, you know, I get that. And I got nothing against the man. I mean, you know, I've been invited to sign at a store several times, so we're good. But as he's walking away, the thing that annoyed me the most and haunts me to this day is I didn't have a pithy reply like Mickey did. <laughs> he's walking away and I'm like, oh yeah? You know, I, I, I've got nothing. And this has bothered me because I, I have a high degree of respect for the crime novel. A couple, maybe a year or so, a couple years after that, I was invited to teach a course at the University of Minnesota as an adjunct. And that year, uh, Carol Bly, you know, the great poet and essayist, and she was the guest chairperson. And what that meant was she, you know, she would teach master classes, you know, for grad students and a couple of seminars and things like that. So they throw her a cocktail party in Prospect Park. Prospect Park, be sure to wipe your feet. And I'm invited. And first of all, I have to tell you that when the University of Minnesota throws a cocktail party, they're not screwing around. I mean, these guys are serving martinis that would take the paint off your car, right? <laughs> So we're, we're milling about, and I'm meeting people, and the party's going along, and then they, they, make, they introduce, formally introduce Miss Bly, and everybody applauds. And then they go around the room, and they're going to introduce the adjuncts. These are guys like me who are teaching, teaching basically one course, and then we're, we're out, right? So they get to me, and I say, my name is David Hausreit. And I'm teaching a course on the modern American mystery novel, which we all know is the most important literature being written today. <laughs> and I sit down. <laughs> Carol Bly crosses the room like a linebacker. <laughs> Boom, sweeps across the room, grabs me, yanks me out, big woman, big woman, grabs me, yanks me out of the chair and says, sir, you can't make a blanket statement like that and then sit down, sir. I demand you defend your thesis. My thesis is I'm working on my fourth martini and I'm wondering how I'm going to get home. I am in full-blown smart-ass mode by this moment. <laughs> so all these English teachers and, and, and professors and grad students are staring at me. I'm thinking two things. One, God. And two, <laughs> I do know one or two things on the subject. I was, in fact, teaching a class at the University of Minnesota, right? So I said, okay, listen. There's this guy named, guy, what the hell was his name? Guy in Bowman, 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 something like that. Don't hold me to the name. And he had, in 93, I think it was, he had written a book about homes, homelessness in America that did very well. Sold about 100,000 hard copies, and I know he was in Time Magazine. I think he was interviewed on, on Meet, the, uh, Meet the Press or Meet the Nation, whatever the hell that was. The next year, 
John Grisham writes The Street Lawyer about homelessness in America, sells three and a half million copies and gets a movie deal. Who is going to have the greater impact on the public debate? I sit down again. This causes an argument. <laughs> I carry notebooks with me. I have one in my car. You know, you jot down stuff, you, you know, things you see that interest you, stuff people say, and you know, all that sort of thing. I didn't have my notebook with me, and I wish I had because English, teach, English professors and grad students arguing is something to behold. <laughs> I mean, I'm hearing insults I, you don't hear outside of Shakespeare. I mean, it's like, you know, a pox on your house, sir, and I'm like, where's a pen? <laughs> But this goes on for half the term, and you get grad students arguing at Stubborn Herbs in Stadium Village over a, a, a pitcher of beer about what good does it do to write the great American novel if nobody reads it? And what influences you know, the people, the word they read or the, or the mind it comes from, and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, hey, I must be onto something here. So I'm starting to think better myself, my profession. A little while after that, I was asked to teach a course at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. Now, for you who don't know what that is, the Loft has become this kind of iconic uh, center for literary, for the written word, for all things, all things writing. And, and they have these, these, these great writers come in and do lectures and stuff, and they teach all these classes and so on and so forth. And I think they're sponsoring uh, uh, talking volumes with Carrie and all this sort of thing. So they asked me to teach a course. And they throw a cocktail party. <laughs> no. Common theme. <laughs> no, no. You know, their idea of a cocktail party is, is lukewarm fruit punch and cookies the size of Frisbees, you know, with little M&Ms floating around. You know. And we're in a conference room. Yeah, you get crazy in a conference room. So they decide to go around the table, and everybody who's teaching that year is going to introduce themselves. And they get to me, and I'm like, hey. It worked before. <laughs> so I said, my name's David Housewright, and I'm teaching a course in a modern American mystery novel, which we all know is the most important literature being written today. Silence. <laughs> 30 people being in, in a room being silent, that's a lot of silence, right? <laughs> so I'm like, whoa, better quit while I'm ahead. Guy over here says, what makes you think you're ahead? Okay. Woman next to me gets up. I wish to God I could remember her name, but I don't. She gets up, introduces herself, and says she's teaching a class on poetry, which we all know is the least important literature. <laughs> they gave her an ovation. She's not wrong. And I'm like, yeah, okay, mystery writer, yeah, pulp fiction. But this is crap. And it's always annoyed me. Uh, you get a lot of people who will look down on the crime novel. 
and not just a crime novel, but uh, romance. Well, uh, <laughs> but fantasy and science fiction and westerns and, and what have you. The idea that if you write genre fiction, somehow that's less than literary fiction. To which I ask, what in the hell is literary fiction anyway? In my definition, literary fiction is simply that work that, that resonates over the years, that can speak to future generations. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you stick it on the shelf in the, in the bookstore or in the library. I mean, uh, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry won the Pulitzer Prize. Is that literature or is that just a Western? Uh, Cormac McCarthy wrote a book called No Country for Old Men. Is that literature? Or is that the crime novel with the worst ending I've ever read? <laughs> you know? Uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, an obvious example. Is that literature? Or is that fantasy? Isaac Asimov, I, Robot. Is that literature? Or is that merely science fiction? A lot of people forget that uh, Gone with the Wind also won to peel it back in 32, 34, somewhere in there. Is that literature? Or is that historical romance? I argue that it's literature because even uh, almost 80 years after it was originally published, 90 years going on, people are still reading it. And it still has things to say to them. That makes it literature not where you stick it on, on the, the book. Uh, but we, we, we're taught to dislike things. And I refuse to be that person, and I used to be. You know, I used to hate stuff that I knew nothing about. And now I refuse. Because to me, it's the same, you know, you, uh, uh, you hate rap music. You hate hip-hop, to which I reply, really, what have, you, what have you listened to? Whom have you heard that brought you this, to this conclusion? And more often than not, you haven't heard any of it. Somebody told you this was terrible music, and you nodded your head and you believed it. Same with opera. I mean, how can you hate opera if you've never actually gone to an opera and listened to it? or classical music. I, you know, I, I pick on romance writers all the time, but I have friends who, who wrote romance. And I wrote, read their books because they were my friends, and now I'm like, okay, I'm still gonna pick on you, but <laughs> I don't really mean it anymore, <laughs> you know? And that's, and that's my answer. A guy comes up to me and says, I don't, you know, if Garrison Keillor walked through the door right now, and he said what he said before, I don't read mysteries. I would ask him, if I could go back in time, I would ask him, hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. What have you read? Who have you read that brought you to this conclusion? 
And if he gives me a list of books and names and he says, eh, for, you know, then I'm like, okay, we're good. But if he doesn't, my answer is to give him a list. Say, hey, read these books. And if you don't like these books, okay, I get it, you don't like mystery. But if you do, come back, I'll give you another list. And that's my attitude about it. And that's what I would, you know, I would say to these guys who look down on my work because they think it's, it's, it's not worthy of the paper we're printed on. I was at the Minnesota Book Awards uh, a couple years ago. Why, yes, I did win. Thank you for asking. Um, uh, we, you know, if you ever go to these things, they, before the ceremony, before they, they do all this stuff, they have a big reception. And they have tables lining this big reception room. And uh, all the authors who are nominated are basically behind the table so that they can meet people and sign books and do all that. And, you know, they, they have the names where, you know, what category you're in. And the table had this young woman who basically each table had somebody who was wrangling the authors to keep us from wandering away. <laughs> and, and, and would fetch us bourbon <laughs> for free. Um, so the, the young woman at our table now, my table's here, and right over here, this is novel and poetry, or some, whatever the literary category was, they're right here. And Louise Erdrich, who, by the way, is a sweetheart, if you ever get a chance to meet her, she's signing books. She's got a nice line. And I'm over here, my line is much smaller. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but the young woman asked me, loud enough for Louise to hear, what's the difference between what you guys do and what they do? And Louise stopped and turns and looks at her. <laughs> and I see her, I see her looking, but I can't look her in the eye because she's Louise Erdrich. And I said, as far as I know, it's only a matter where they stick us on the shelf at Barnes and Noble. And Louise stops and goes, eh. <laughs> and just keeps going. So, good for Louise. Um, but that's my take on it. I think uh, mysteries can be great novels. I think mysteries can be literature. Why not? Why not Mystic River by Dennis Lehane? Why not Ordinary Grace by William Ken Kruber? Why not uh, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle by George V. Higgins? Why not Maltese Falcon? Or The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler? Why can't those be literature? With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for David Housewright and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night 
comes from an audience member wondering what David Housewright likes to read. Well, this will become a surprise to you, but I don't read many mysteries anymore. <laughs> I used to. I used to read five or six crime novels for every non-crime novel. And, uh, and it made all the difference because, you know, I tried writing books over the years and they went nowhere. They just, they were really bad. In fact, I kept them. And I had a, a big, this, I want to say it's a briefcase, but it's almost like a small suitcase. And I, and I had it in my attic. And I actually, this is true, about two months ago, I'm going through the act and I come across it. And I open and I start looking at some of the manuscripts. And one of them was called Something Happened. <laughs> I actually thought that was going to be a good title for a book. And I just started reading and all I could think of was, God, I hope this guy had a, had a daytime job because <laughs> this is bad. And um, they were bad. And, they, and I, I suspect it was because I thought I was going to be F. Scott Fitzgerald. I was going to write literature. And they weren't very good at all. And then I decided, well, OK, I'm, you know what? Why don't I just tell a story? So when I was working on my very first novel, Penance, and I'm plotting it out, it occurred to me, up until then, I thought I was going to write about political corruption. I was going to write a, you know, a poli-sci kind of book. But as I'm working it out, it occurred to me, I throw a couple of dead bodies on the floor. This is going to be a hell of a crime novel. And so I did, and I won the Edgar Award. So, and that, propelled me into the mystery world. Uh, and I think it's because I read so many crime novels that the conventions of the crime novel and the structure was, was very uh, uh, ingrained in my thinking. So as I'm plotting it out, it, it just seemed to fall into that kind of, of mode. And, I tell people now that I didn't choose mystery so much as mysteries chose me. But that was then. And now, 19 books later, I find I'm reading one or two crime novels, or I'm reading four, five or six non-crime novels for every crime novel. Uh, and partly it's because you get so immersed in the structure that you understand how it works so well that it's very easy to figure out who done it. You understand what I call the, uh, the economy of narration. You understand that if you have a scene in which somebody gives keys to somebody and says, don't lose them, they're the only set. Now all I have to do is wade through a couple of chapters until I find out who had the keys. You see what I mean? And I don't care how well uh, hidden all these clues are. I don't care about the craftsmanship of the writer. I know how it works. So I find that the only crime novels I read now are, are the books written by people I like, my friends, and also those books that I've been assured uh, transcend just the whodunit. I always believe that the best crime novels are the ones that you can read a second time after you already know what's going on. Because the best crime novels are about more than the crime. 
like Mystic River, like Ordinary Grace by William Kent Kruger. So that's what I do. I mean, right now, <laughs> I'm reading Louise Erdrich. I'm reading, I'm getting around to Roundhouse. I haven't uh, read it before. I'm halfway through. This question is from where do the ideas for House Wright's novels come? They come from everywhere. And you have to be welcoming to these things. Uh, sometimes the idea comes from a thing. A few years ago, uh, my daughter's a horticulturalist, and she was doing an internship at the Longwood Gardens in Philadelphia. So my wife and I went out there to visit her during the summer. And while we were there, I went to the uh, Andrew Wyeth Museum. And he did the Helga pictures and all this great stuff. And I'm, I'm reading all about this, and I go, huh. You know, there's a, there's a story there. There's a book there. But I did nothing with it. I had no idea what the hell I was going to do with it. Until recently. And now I'm thinking I'm going to make that into a, into a crime novel. Because I think I got an idea now how, of where to go. But so you get stuff and you don't know what to do with it and sometimes you get an idea. On the other hand, sometimes you sit down and you say, you know what? I want to write about the depopulation of the Great Plains states. You know, Wyoming, nobody lives in Wyoming. There are few people in Wyoming than Alaska. You take Wyoming, you take Montana, you take Idaho, you take North Dakota, and combine them, and you have the population of the greater Twin Cities area. So what do you do if you're living in a town that, is, that literally has no reason to exist anymore? And you're 40 years old, and you're married, and you have a couple of kids, and the pharmacy just closed. So I said, OK, I'm going to write about that, about living out there and, and that being those people. And then I have to think of a story to tell that will allow me to do that. So it goes back and forth. Sometimes you get the idea for the book, and sometimes you get the what it is you want to talk about first, and then you figure out the story. Uh, I did a book called Stealing the Countess, which is about the theft of a Stradivarius uh, violin. And that actually happened in Milwaukee. This guy grabbed a Stradivarius violin, thinking he's now a great criminal. He's, you know, like you see on TV, he's David Niven, for God's sake. And now he's got $4 million Stradivarius violin. What the hell is he going to do with it, right? So I heard that, and I thought, that's hysterical. I'm going to write a book about that kind of thing. And you know, so it comes and goes, and you just have to be open to it. You have to be aware. You have to keep asking, what if, what if, what if? This audience member asks if David Housewright does a lot of research before sitting down to write a book. Yes, you do. <laughs> I, like, I like to say, no, I just sit down and knock it off. But No, you do that. You have to do the research. And I'm a very big stickler on authenticity and getting it right. And it just annoys me when somebody calls me or sends me an email that says, oh, by the way, that's not the way it works, or you got this wrong. And I just go, damn it. Because I, I try really hard to, to get, that, get that all right. Um, one of the things I teach my students when I do teach 
is that all fiction is a lie. All fiction is a lie. All fiction is a lie. There's stories that somebody made up. But the best lies are 90% truth. That's why we believe them. So it really upsets me when I make a mistake that makes a reader stop and go, wait a minute, that's not right. Because that puts the lie in jeopardy. And I, I just hate that. <laughs> Our next question is from an audience member wondering why one of Housewright's characters is from St. Paul, but moves to Minneapolis. Internal conflict. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, because I did it on purpose. And what happened was I, I started with a series with a, a traditional trench coat detective called Holland Taylor. And he lived in St. Paul. He's a St. Paul boy. And then for reasons that are just too painful to recount, that series went away and I created a McKenzie series who is another kid from St. Paul. Well, I'm bringing back Holland Taylor. January 2nd, Darkness Sing Me a Song comes out. I expect you all to buy copies. And knowing that, I thought, look, I can't have both guys living a block from each other, right? So I, I decided, well, what I was going to do is I was going to move McKenzie to Minneapolis because it's part of the joke, the longstanding joke. Uh, in, in the very first book, McKenzie's a St. Paul boy, and he moves to a house in St. Anthony Park, a neighborhood of St. Paul, and after he makes an offer, he realizes he's just made a terrible, terrible mistake. The house is on the wrong side of the street. And instead of being St. Paul, he's now in Falcon Heights. <laughs> and this becomes a running joke through the, through the course of the book. And now I'm moving him to Minneapolis just for the fun of it. <laughs> and, and then I'm moving Mackenzie, or Holland Taylor, onto Cathedral Hill. And so uh, you, you, the two characters are never going to meet, I promise you. But at the same time, I don't want to cover the same ground all, you know, if I can avoid it. This question is about the importance Housewright puts on setting and place in his novels. I am a big, big, big believer in location in books because I think location helps inform the characters. By that I mean, um, there's an old saying, if you're from where they're from and you're taught what they are taught, you will believe what they believe. Something I wish our State Department would catch on to. <laughs> and if you can capture that location, you can give the reader a real sense of who these people are and why they behave the way they behave. James Lee Burke does it in New Orleans. Kruger, that hack, um, <laughs> you know, he does it in northern Minnesota. He's just, he's one of the best at it I've ever seen. He's just so good at it. 
And uh, I like to do that. I want to give people a sense of Minnesota so that they understand why these characters behave the way they do. And I think if you do it right, you'll find that the characters can't really exist outside of that environment. I don't think uh, uh, Burke's characters can exist outside of the bayou. I don't think Carl Hyacinth's characters can exist outside uh, the Keys. Or Dennis Lehane's in Baltimore, or Laura Lippman's in, or excuse me, Dennis Lehane in Boston, and Laura Lippman in Baltimore. Because uh, they wouldn't be the same. This audience member points out that Housewright's novels are not as violent and graphic as many other crime writers. Why is that? My, my question is always the same when I read uh, in depth about somebody's destruction. Why? Why are you telling me this? Why do I need to know this? Now, in a couple of cases, you might need to know this so you can understand the motivation of the characters. But mostly, you really don't. And I think it's just the writer uh, indulging the audience. We, we seem to think that the more violence, uh, the better. That you just ramp it up. And the more, you know, you started with, with, you know, in movies, it started with Peckinpah in The Wild Bunch. That huge bloody opening and the bloody ending. But he was trying to make a point that had nothing to do with the actual bloodshed. He was talking about the, the, the characters and, and all this. And everybody else jumped up and said, yeah, we can have that kind of blood too. And you're... I, I don't write it because I don't like it. Uh, it's very simple. And I, I will tell readers or writers the same thing. You know, write what you want to read. Uh, there's a movie called Seven with, uh, you know, one of serial killer movies and, and Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow. And I'm going to ruin the ending if you haven't seen it, Kevin Spacey. He just shows up. And it's so well done, and it's so smartly crafted that when you get to the end, it's just shocking. And that was the end for me. So, I, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm not going to watch this stuff anymore. I'm not going to read this stuff anymore. You know, dismemberment and torture and all that, it just doesn't entertain me the way it used to. And so I don't do it. Another audience member notes that Housewright's novels show a lot of respect for women. Where does this perspective come from? I'm married and I have a daughter. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to write anything that's going to make him look at me like, what, are you nuts? <laughs> uh, and I think it goes back, I was fortunate growing up in that I, 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 was, I, I just knew all these really remarkable women, starting with my mother. And, you know, I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't read, write those characters into the books, why you would write a character who is less than that. I mean, I loved John D. McDonald growing up. I grew, you know, the Travis McGee novels had a great influence on me. And I think if you read the McKenzie novels, you'll see 
certain similarities. And I went back to read some of those books years later, and I'm like, God, John? Really? I mean, he's such a misogynist. I mean, he just, the way he treated the women in his books were just like, you know, my, my, my daughter would burn you at the stake, man. <laughs> and so I, I keep that in mind. And it isn't so much that I want to write strong female characters as much as it is I just want to write smart characters, period. And, you know, that's how that works. This next question is about the relationship between David Housewright and William Kent Kruger. Kruger and I have been, I, uh, Kruger and I, we did this thing at the uh, Roseville Public Library a while back. They were doing this, this gala thing and we actually had tuxedos on. And uh, Carrie Miller <laughs> decided she didn't want anything to do with us, that we could introduce ourselves and do what we wanted. So I get there in front of everybody. I say, Kent, I'm going to go first because I've won the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have an Edgar Award. We're the only two who do in Minnesota. And I'm like, yeah, but I have three Minnesota Book Awards. I have five Minnesota <laughs> Book Awards. And I said, I am the president of the Private Eye Writers of America. I was elected king of the prom my senior year. <laughs> you can't, you can't top that, right? It's not, you know, I'm, okay, you go for it. <laughs> so I'm, I pick on Ken all the time. He picks on me, I think. And uh, that's just the way it goes. You, you find in Minnesota, there's this real camaraderie with crime writers. In fact, you find that pretty much throughout the community. And... Uh, it's, you know, it's what we do. This audience member asks about how Housewright does his research. Does he have many sources he calls upon? Over the, over, over the years, I have developed a lot of relationships with, with sources, with people who help me out. And I've got a district court judge who is all things legal for me. And I have a retired homicide cop who will keep me, you know, within the, the rules. And I have a, a forensic specialist who works for the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. And I have a retired FBI agent. And I have a uh, ATF agent. And I got guys. You know, I've got people I can go to to make sure I don't screw up. And you do that. You know, you meet people and they, you ask them for help. And you'd be amazed how, how helpful people want to be and how much they'll tell you their stories. And, and you know, I've got standing lunch dates with like a dozen people. I got 911 operators. I got all kinds of people who help me out. So yeah, you, do, you have to do that because you have to get it right. I hate it when I read a book and I know, God, that's not the way it works. It does not work that way. Cops wouldn't do that. It doesn't happen. I met a guy from the art crime unit, the FBI's uh, art crime unit, and uh, he, was, he was a hoot because he would, he would hint at stuff, but he wouldn't tell me anything. <laughs> you know, and, and I asked him, well, you know, art forgery, how prevalent is that? And he would stop and he'd say, I would say 30 to 50% of all the paintings. Well, no, I won't say that. <laughs> and I'm like, 
<laughs> what? <laughs> what Truth, but you know, 30% of the paintings in museums are all forgeries. Mm -hmm. And the museums are not going, I, I did a book called uh, 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 Curse of the Jade Lily. And the guys at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, they were, they were just wonderful people. They just helped me out immensely. And they're telling me all kinds of things about security and stuff that they just shouldn't have told me. <laughs> and, and then, okay, I'm talking to this art guy, and this is a couple of books later, and I'm thinking of a book I'm working on now about dealing with forgery and stuff. And I called up my sources at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and they said, listen, the amount of forgeries in museums, and boom, that conversation ended in a hurry. They did not want to even go there. And I'm like, okay, that's all I really needed to know. Thank you. But um, <laughs> you get that. This question asker wonders why Housewright set his most recent novel in New Brighton, Minnesota. My mom lives in New Brighton. Uh, I needed things to tell the story, and they were New Brighton. So I said, why the hell not? Uh, those of you who've read my stuff, I wrote a book called Dead Boyfriends, oh, yeah. which takes place in Anoka. And that was, that was, that was interesting because I, 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 I had all this, the only reason it took place in Anoka was because I had all this great research. I had a friend of mine who gave me a tour of the jail and the, and the police headquarters and all this stuff, and I had all this wonderful, wonderful background information that I, I actually kept for a couple of years. And then when I'm plotting out the book, I'm thinking, well, where should this take place? I got all this stuff. So I said, well, Anoka. And I got nasty emails from Anoka. <laughs> and you know who you are. And I was shocked by this because I didn't really get many nasty emails. Once in a while, but you know, not a lot. And you know, like the city, the, the, the retired city manager, you know, why Anoka? And I'm like, well, why not? I mean, you know, because that's how I look at it. To me, it was just, you know, you learn about the place and you use it. So I actually did a signing here at Rum River. And it was a huge crowd and I'm thinking, oh God. <laughs> Where are the ropes? Where are the pitchforks? And I'm like, okay, all right. And I get up and instead of, I don't even remember what I was gonna talk about, but instead of doing a, a shtick, I stood there and said, all right, you know, take your turns. And you guys seem to like me. I mean, emails aside, although the woman who owns the Avant Garden, I made fun of the Avant Garden. And instead of eating, drinking an Anoka Mocha, oh. Mackenzie went down to where the tattoo place was. I don't know if it's still there, where you can get a cup of joe there and, you know, to get coffee. And she's sitting right in front. And she goes, you know, what does Mackenzie have against, you know, the Anoka Mocha? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. He can be such an asshole something. <laughs> And that seemed to satisfy her. And, I'm, and, you know, I just picked on her because I, I, I wanted, ah, I was going for a cheap joke. And I feel bad about it now. I wish she was here, I'd apologize, but dang it.
The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Housewright closely identifies with any of his characters. I get that a lot. People ask me, are you Mackenzie? Or are you Taylor? And I'm really not. In fact, I had a guy I play hockey with once who told me uh, that my ambition was life was to be tall and beat up people. <laughs> and I said, no, my ambition in life was to write books about people who are tall and beat up people. <laughs> I'm, I'm all of the characters. I'm all the good guys and I'm all the bad guys. Uh, Mackenzie has a, a love for, for baseball, jazz, and, and hockey. Yeah, okay. I, you know, I kind of like those things. Uh, Taylor, on the, other hand, on the other hand, is, you know, coming out in January again after, God, 20 years, 15 years. He's much more cynical. On the other hand, he loves bourbon. <laughs> so, you know, you could argue I'm, I'm all of these guys, but I'm really not any of them. Uh, uh, you know, the same with the characters. I have people who will tell me, well, this character is so-and-so from college, or this is character is, is a guy I, I know. My friends will tell me this. They recognize people. I go, really? No. No, I steal things. I steal gestures, and I steal uh, phrases, and I steal looks. But the character aren't those people I steal them from. And sometimes they get it, and sometimes they don't. Uh, my mother, I put my mother in a book. <laughs> I didn't pick, put her in a book. What happened was when, my, my, when I was a kid, my brother, we were going to go on a family vacation, the last family vacation, because we're all in college and whatnot. And my brother comes home at like 8 in the morning, carrying his shoes with his shirt unbuttoned. My mother just flips out. <laughs> now, my mother never flipped out ever. And this is why this is such an uncanny moment, because she grabs a spatula and she starts whacking him. <laughs> and Al is half crying and half laughing, because this is, a, this is a funny moment in our lives. I certainly enjoyed it. Um, and then my mom waved a spatula at him and said, you lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. What the hell, Ma? <laughs> and it turned out Al just crashed on his buddy's couch instead of driving home, you know, after having too much to drink. And I'm like, taking a beat now, that's my hero. <laughs> yeah. So years later, God, decades later, I put this scene in the book where, where uh, Taylor's mother is holding a fried chicken leg in a, in a tongs and waving it at Taylor because of this girl he was seeing, saying, you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Now, my brothers, they're like, we're leaving. <laughs> we're getting out of Dodge because they thought my mom was going to be upset. And I didn't hear from my mom for like 10 days, which is a long time not to hear from my mom. And my wife is like, I told you not to do it. 
so I call my mom and I go, okay, you know, what's going on? Nothing. Well, I haven't heard from you a while. Well, it turns out she didn't want to call us because she was selling the family home, the house we grew up in. And she thought we'd be upset. And then she got upset because we weren't upset. <laughs> We're like, eh, okay. But you grew up there, yeah? And I said, oh, well, I thought you might be angry at me. I go, why? This is because Holland Taylor's mother bears an uncomfortable resemblance to my mother. She didn't get it. She didn't see it. To this day, she doesn't get it. And my brothers will, will drop hints, like at Thanksgiving, you know, they'll pick up a chicken leg and a, <laughs> or a turkey leg. And, and my mom just goes, why, why are you guys always bringing that up? <laughs> so you get that. You know, sometimes people see themselves and sometimes they don't. When they see themselves, it's almost always an accident because I didn't put them in. And when I do, people very rarely recognize it. Gee, uh, how uh, an hour passes. Um, I want to thank you all again for coming. I appreciate it very much. Uh, I want to thank you for, 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 for being here. And uh, like I said, mysteries are the most important <laughs> literature being written today. Thank you for thank all you. of coming. That wraps up our Anoka County Library Rum River event with David Housewright. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Sean Lawrence Otto at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Sean Otto is a nationally acclaimed science activist and two-time Minnesota Book Award winner. Science Blogs lauds his newest book, The War on Science, as a game changer and probably the most important book you'll read this year. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>